This morning, I've titled our message, A Living God of the Living, and we'll be finishing out Luke chapter 20. So the last time we were together, we covered the first half of chapter 20, and today we'll be finishing it out. Now, in case you weren't with us, or just need a reminder, or not last week, two weeks ago, uh, in case you need a reminder, we saw in the first 26 verses that Jesus was questioned about John the Baptist, and we learned, we also saw how he responded to that. Now, the purpose for those questions not wasn't so much for inquiry. They, the, the people questioning him, his opponents, were trying to trap him. Now, there also in that first half, he also gave a parable to show them that Israel had historically rejected God's messengers and how their rejection of him would now be their ruin. And lastly, we saw how he responded, how he responded when, the, when he was questioned once again about the authority of government and the authority of God. Well, this week, the question from his opponents will continue. But now, they will be about an important topic that every believer has or uh, hopes for, and that is the resurrection. And Jesus will then turn the tables and ask a question of his own regarding their view on who the Messiah is. And finally, he will end with a warning to his followers not to be fooled by the appearance and the self-serving religiosity of some of the religious Jews leaders. So this morning's message will hopefully show you that in Jesus, we have a living God of the living. As our Savior, Jesus gives us hope of a new life at the resurrection. This was something that King David understood, but sadly, many chose and still do. Many are choosing to this day to ignore this fact. So before we get into today's passage, the first half of this passage today, let's ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Lord God, we are again thankful that you brought us here. We, uh, we, we, um, it was just a, an awesome time of, of worship here in the beginning, Lord. And again, we're thankful that, uh, that we have the voices, the mouths to do that. So now as we continue this time of worship, uh, we continue to dedicate this time to you. So we want to hear from you now through your word, through this message that that you helped, that you that you used me to prepare, Lord. So fill this room with your spirit, Lord. May your message go out powerfully out there online, whoever's listening. May it touch those that, that hear it. So again, soften hearts and minds at this moment. Love you and praise you in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, Luke chapter twenty, Luke chapter twenty, Luke chapter twenty, verse twenty-seven. And the Word of God says, "Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came up and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother." 
Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. Also the second and the third took her. In the same way, all seven died and left no children. Finally, the woman died too. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? Will the woman be? For all seven had married her. Jesus told them, the children of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to take part in, in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they can no longer die because they are like angels and are children of God, since they are children, since they are children of the resurrection. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised where he calls, where he calls the, the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. Some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. And don't, they no longer dared to ask him anything. Well, in this section, a new group of opponents take center stage to question Jesus on a theological topic, the resurrection. Now I say a new group because this is the first time in this gospel that the Sadducees are mentioned. Now the Sadducees were basically the ancient version of modern theologians. They were anti-supernaturalistic, only accepting the first five books of Moses as authentic and dismissed anything written in them that didn't align with their views. This group of religious men didn't believe in immortality, spirits or angels, and denied the resurrection because, well, they couldn't find evidence of it anywhere in those first five books. So in their own attempt to trap Jesus in a theological corner, they used an extreme illustration to make the doctrine of the resurrection appear ridiculous. But as we've seen with all the other different groups, all his other opponents, the Lord was ready for them too. They reminded Jesus that in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, a single man had a legal obligation to marry his brother's widow in order to carry on the family name and preserve the family property. They gave Jesus an extreme scenario where, in which a woman had married seven brothers and after the, death of the, after the death of the previous one. When the seventh one died, she left no children. Then finally, the woman died too. So the question was, in the resurrection, whose wife will the woman be? By asking this, they thought they were stumping him by an unanswerable problem. See, the question assumed that in the resurrection, people would just resume their monogamous marriage relationships that they had here on earth. So in this situation, it showed how impossible this would be since all seven had married her. Jesus answered by telling them, about three false assumptions they had. First, he informs them that not everyone will participate in the resurrection. 
The expression, those who are accounted worthy to take part in that age, does not suggest that anyone is personally worthy of heaven. You see, the only worthiness sinners can have is the worthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The phrase resurrection from the dead refers to a resurrection of believers only. It literally means resurrection out from, out from the dead ones. So how do we know that this is speaking of born-again believers? Well, out of several passages that are found in Scripture, I'll just point out a couple, a couple of them. In John eleven twenty-five, Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in, in me, even if he dies, will live. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, it says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. You see, my friends, resurrection isn't reconstruction. It's a miraculous granting of a new body that has continuity with the old body, but it isn't the same. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 50, Paul compared our present bodies, these bodies that we have right now, as a planted seed and the future resurrection body as the glorious flower of that fruit. Let me remind you that our Lord's resurrection, resurrection body was the same as before his death, but yet it was different. His friends recognized him and even felt him. He could eat food, and yet he could also walk through closed doors, change his appearance, and vanish suddenly. Now, since Christ is the first of a great harvest of all who have died, then we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Does that make sense? When we have our new resurrection bodies, resurrected bodies, we will be like him. I imagine something like the X-Men. I don't know, something, you know, <laughs> having some kind of supernatural powers like that, you know, but yeah, but we will have again perfected bodies. These are, these are the bodies that we were meant to have, that we will be given. Second, the Lord tells them that in the next life, in the next world, is not like the life in this world. The practice of marriage, any marriage relationship is for, is for this life only and isn't renewed or resumed or continued after a believer dies and goes to heaven. So if you're completely in love with your wife, your husband, I'm sorry to say you're not going to continue that marriage up in heaven. It's just, it's just not. Um, now, he isn't saying that husbands and wives wouldn't recognize each other in heaven. But he is implying 
that the relationship will be completely different. I'm fully convinced that love will be perfected in heaven. And here's why. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13 says, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of, the, of these is love. Why is love the greatest of virtues? Because it's eternal. In heaven, all our hopes will be realized. You see, in Romans chapter 8, verse 24, it says, Hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? So, all that we have laid hold of by faith will be ours to enjoy forever. And it's then that faith will be swallowed up by sight. And finally, we will love perfectly and we will be loved perfectly for all of eternity. In John chapter 13, verse 1, it says that Christ loved his disciples to the end. The Greek word to the end literally means unto eternity. Or in other words, perfection. Well, that same love will engulf us forever. And we, and we will finally be able to love perfectly in return. So if we're able, if we're going to be able to love perfectly, it won't be necessary to display that love through marriage in paradise. There, we'll not only live like Christ, but we're going to love like him too. Dear friends, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Now third, since the major focus of marriage is to have children, to rear children, to raise them up, and to fill the earth, as in Genesis chapter 1, this won't be necessary in the afterlife. Why? Because there, no one will die. In this respect, and only in this respect, do people become like angels. You see, like angels, believers have put on immortality. The moment they've Accepted the moment you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and became born again, you put on immortality. Whereas angels were already created immortal. Now, what's amazing too is that we will be called children of God and children of the resurrection. This means that we will have that that we will be given we, we are given greater titles. We will be even greater than angels. See, these titles aren't given to angelic beings in the New Testament. They're given to us. So here again, Jesus attacked the Sadducees for not believing that angels existed. 
Thus Jesus defanged the Sadducees, taking all their venom from their argument. In doing so, he implied the reality of the resurrection and set the stage for his own personal proof of the resurrection. To prove Now to prove the resurrection, the Lord Jesus finished his argument by going back to the Sadducees, Sadducees' own authority, the law of Moses, specifically Exodus chapter 3 verse 6. There, Moses referred to God as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. In Moses' time, these patriarchs had been dead for a very, very long time. So using the methods of interpretation of his day, Jesus drew drew the theological conclusion that God doesn't have a relationship with dead people, but with the living Keep in mind that the Lord didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The implication was that if he could be the God of the patriarchs, the patriarchs must then be alive. And through their earthly, and even though their earthly life had long been over, This emphatically tells us that those departed from this life, those that we love and care about, those who have, those that we know have believed and trusted in Jesus, who have been, who were born again, are also alive. They live personally, meaning they are still individuals in the life to come. They are mentioned, they are mentioned by their names. They are known, in other words, they are known and not anonymous. They are free from all sorrow, never to die, and to live as sons and daughters of God. They are not lost. We know where they are, and they also know where they're at. Thus, we can confidently conclude that believers aren't among the dead but among the living and are eagerly eagerly anticipating the resurrection so you see the character of God as the God of the living demands it demands the resurrection C.H. Spurgeon said it beautifully a living God is the God of living men Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, that the God, that God is the God of the whole person, spirit, soul, and body. Because he created the whole person. So he doesn't simply save our souls and ignore the rest of our being. Inherent in the very nature of God's creative act is his concern for the total person. Hence, he will not keep us disembodied spirits forever, but will give us a glorious body to match our heavenly perfection. So what Jesus ended up doing here in this section was simply affirm what the Sadducees had denied. 
the existence of angels, the reality of life after death, and the hope of a future resurrection. And he only did it with one passage, with one passage of Moses. He proved them wrong. Well, earlier in this chapter, the scribes had joined the Pharisees in leading the opposition to Jesus. And now, now according to verse 39, some of them had complimented Jesus. So this is, does this indicate a break in the ranks? Was there a division now? Was there, were people starting to come around? Perhaps, maybe. But at least for now, Jesus had finally silenced his opponents. See, they had learned they couldn't trap Jesus. Jesus wasn't a fool. He knew what was going on. He was too smart for them. So they no longer dared to ask him anything. They knew it was a fruitless endeavor. So not only did Jesus answer well, but he proved that he was too smart too, and too clever for them. And both his friends and his enemies recognized it. So what we're going to do now is read the last two sections of this chapter. So if you still have your Bibles open, turn with me to verse 47. 41, I'm sorry. Verse 41, Luke chapter 20, verse 41. Then he said to them, How can they say that Christ is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. How then can the Christ be his son? While all, the while all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Well, having passed the examination of the various religious groups, now it's time for Jesus to examine them. And he asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is, whose son is he? Now those words can be found in Matthew chapter 22, verse 42. Then, citing, Psalm 110, verse 1. He used Jewish methods this time of studying scripture to identify the Messiah. You see, Israel looked for a son of David who would occupy Jerusalem's throne, the, the throne of Jerusalem, and restore Israel's political fortunes. Jesus, however, argued that they had the wrong concept of the Messiah. They, they didn't figure it out. They had it all wrong. He wanted them to understand that he was greater than David with a greater mission than David. 
So he used the psalm to show them that even David himself called him Lord. The Jewish leaders in that day identified Psalm 110 as a prophetic psalm and said that David there was speaking of the Messiah. But if the Messiah is David's Lord, how can he be David's son? This was something that they couldn't reconcile. So the only explanation is that the Messiah must be both God and man. As eternal God, Messiah is David's Lord. But as man, he is David's son. Now, if you remember when we covered it back in Palm Sunday, the multitudes had proclaimed Jesus as the son of David. And while they were doing that, he never rebuked them. So by applying Psalm 110 verse 1 to himself, Jesus was claiming to be Israel's promised Messiah, the Son of God. Then why didn't the Pharisees believe him? Because their minds were made up. Their hearts, their hearts were hardened and their eyes were blind. They didn't have the courage to confess the truth and they persecuted those who did affirm faith in Christ Jesus. Now, this, we can see this happening even to this day. So many people have hardened their hearts. They know that they aren't perfect. They know that they're sinners and are trying to justify their sin. They're trying to make it seem like they're really good people. But as the Lord said, there is no one good. There is no one good at all. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you, if you think that your goodness is going to get you to heaven, if you think that's enough to get you to the kingdom of God, sadly you're mistaken. You need to believe in Jesus. You need to trust in the Lord. He needs to come and to make his dwelling place into your heart. So have the courage to confess the truth. Don't be like the religious men of those days who have a form of religiosity, who go out, who will, you know, go to church on Sundays, or for them it was on the Sabbath on Saturdays, and but they came across as religious people, as good people, but they really weren't. You can have the courage to confess the truth. Now, after saying this, to the religious leaders, Jesus turned once more to teach his disciples. But he did this while, while all the people were listening. So in a sense, he was telling not just his disciples, but everyone around. In verse 46, Jesus assumed a prophetic teaching role. There he issued a prophetic condemnation, but directing it to his disciples rather 
than the ones condemned. When the going gets rough, Jesus' disciples will be tempted to turn back to the familiarity of Judaism. Jesus reminded them how false this way of life had become. The teachers wanted to be seen for their extraordinary long robes and loved to be, dis- loved to be distinguished by their titles and loved to walk around in the marketplaces to be greeted and to be loved and to be, you know, for everyone to say hi and to greet them. They also maneuvered to get the best seats in the synagogues. And when they were invited to banquets, they would try to also get the best, best seats there, the ones, the seats that would be filled with the best foods, the warmest foods. All this demonstrated that well, all this demonstrated one, one personality trait about them. Pride ruled their lives. Pride makes a person self-centered. Now keep in mind that these men were experts, so-called experts in the Bible. Yet, they didn't apply its truths to their own lives. In all reality, their religion was a matter of external observance, not internal transformation. The tragedy here is that although all signs pointed to Jesus as a Messiah, they still rejected and voted to crucify him. And as a result of that, they led, they led the nation to ruin because they would not admit their sins and confess Jesus Christ. Now, can you imagine what the nation of Israel would have been like if all those leaders would have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior? If they would have recognized him as the Messiah, everything would have been different. But that wasn't part of God's plan. He he already had all this planned ahead of time from eternity past. Now, I know there are many probably here or watching and listening that may be looking for a home church, maybe looking for a church they can call home and, and go to regularly. So let me ask, do you want a self-centered, self-centered person to teach you? Or would you rather have someone who has shown love and care for you and your needs? Well, I hope it's the latter. Unfortunately, to this day, there are many teachers out there who practice their righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Beware of the rock star church leaders who use their positions to make a name for themselves at the expense of others. For them, and many and their churches and their congregants, they're just a stepping stool to get to the next level. Once they, they just want recognition, they, you know, they look for those people that will get them to maybe meet the, you know, meet the senator or the representative or to, to get them you know, on TV or whatever it may be to give them better opportunities. They're only in it for themselves. 
now every day every moment I pray that my head will never get that high that I will never want or I'll never have that desire to be on that on that plane I also have a great wife who will always put me in check <laughs> anytime you know she sees pride starting to build up in my heart she knows how to check me but I don't want to be known for my extravagant clothing, for expensive watches and jewelry, and for having a Rolls Royce and a Mercedes Benz and having a million dollar mansion. No, I just want to be known as someone who is who loves Christ, that is just like everybody else, is trying every day to make it, trying every day just to walk with Christ at times again I, I admit I'm not perfect and I make mistakes but I know that Jesus died for me and I know that he loves me and I know that every time I mess up he tells me okay get back up angel get back up get back up and start walking because I died to forgive you hope that each and every one of you are doing the same. You don't let whatever sin, whatever is bringing you down, keep you down. He wants you to get back up. He wants you to get back up and continue walking. Don't give up. This life is difficult. This life is hard. There are challenges. But those challenges are meant to build you up, to help you to trust more in him to believe more in him to to surrender yourself more to him to depend on him so again don't look for or actually yeah examine those pastors examine those teachers and see if they're living rock star a rock star lifestyle advice is to look for selfless Bible teachers who have a desire to build others up in the name of Jesus. William Perkins said this, a faithful minister of the gospel must deny the pride of his heart, be emptied of ambition, and set himself wholly to seek the glory of God in his calling. The day any of you see me building myself up, go ahead and walk away. It means I'm I'm not this is no longer about Jesus. It's all about me. And I never want that to be about that. I want this, I want it always to be about Christ, not about me. Now, the biggest problem that Jesus noted was in verse 47. There he said, the scribes would devour or rob defenseless widows' houses. So just to give you a little bit of background, the Old Testament had strongly emphasized the necessity for people, especially the religious leaders, to care for widows. 
Now, because of their legal expertise, it's likely that these scribes may have had authority as executors of estates for these widows. Furthermore, they had also, they had probably they had access to charity funds. So what this verse may be referring to is they may have used legal tactics to rob widows of their houses and money that their dead husbands would have left them. But regardless of how they were doing it, Jesus knew that they were manipulating widows and their possessions so that they'd get richer. Then, in order to cover up their greed and mistreatment of the needy, he called them out for reciting long prayers in public, in public, as a show of their piety. Now I say this with trying to have a really calm demeanor, but I do, I get infuriated knowing that in many other ways, this is still happening in many churches, in many denominations, not just in this country, but around the world. Why does this anger me so much? Because I strongly believe that this was happening to my own mother. Now many of you know, six months ago, my mom passed away. She, she had dementia and diabetes and one thing led to another until she finally died of pneumonia at the hospital. Now for a long time, I knew that she was going to a church, but one of the things that really disturbed me was that she would tell me that she was giving her money away to this church. Now my mom was on SSI and disability. She was, you know, she was getting, you know, all kinds of assistance. And so she didn't have a lot of money. But yet I, she would tell me she would give this money, you know, these funds to this church. And I, 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 you know, again, part of me was like believing that she was just giving her tithes and offerings. But it wasn't until after she died that I started going through her stuff and all her papers and that I saw all kinds of receipts, like years of receipts of money that she had given to this church, to this pastor, to this priest in particular. And it really disturbed me and, and it showed me that, man, people are still taking advantage of the elderly, those who are not in their right state of mind. Again, this is happening. And if it happened to my mom, I'm sure it's happening to many more. This is wrong. And if anyone is doing it, if you know that anybody's doing this, taking advantage of the elderly, of widows, of those who are sick, tell them to stop. Tell them to stop in the name of Christ because it isn't right. So that's, that's why it angers me so much. Well, Jesus wasn't through yet. After outlining their sins in prophetic fashion, he then stated the consequence of their sin. 
they would receive harsher judgment than all the rest. Why? Because they had greater responsibility and hadn't exercised it properly. This is what he meant when he said back in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be expected. Yes, Jesus can affirm the reality of the resurrection, but not a resurrection of blessing and joy for those religious leaders. Sure, they may have their glory now, but in the world to come, they would face a fate far worse than they had imposed than, they had, than what they had imposed on the widows. Now, according to Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39, Jesus again uttered a lamentation over the blind unbelief of the nation and their unwillingness to trust him. He had given them many opportunities, but they had wasted them. And now, it was too late. Sadly, the same tragedy is reenacted today. This is why the Holy Spirit warns in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, Today, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. So my question to you, to those who have ignored God's calling at one time. Will you heed this warning and allow Jesus to be the Lord of your life? Or will you continue to reject the life that He wants, you, that he wants to give you? I urge you to take a step of faith and believe in Him who died on the cross for your sins and was, and was raised for your justification. Do it. Do it before it's too late because once you breathe your final breath here on earth, God will judge you according to the choice that you make. Speaking of himself, Jesus said this in John chapter 3, verse 18. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. So, if you're listening and are ready to put your faith and trust in Jesus, and you want to be born again, when I'm finished here with this message, I want to lead you in a prayer to do that. Before I do... I just want to quickly review what we learned in this chapter. This chapter showed us that when Jesus was in Jerusalem, he taught freely as he prepared for the cross. Opponents from different directions, directions attempted to trap him to find a way to get the Roman government involved in killing him without raising the ire of the crowd. They use questions of authority, taxation, and the resurrection to trap him. Each time, each time though, he turned the tables on them. Between their questions, he told stories 
and made public announcements condemning the Jewish leaders for the role in leading Judaism down the wrong path, beating up prophets, and killing the beloved son. These experts in the law also had a poor moral example, strutting their way through the town while enriching themselves at the expense of widows. Their religion was all show, seeking personal honor and fame. So Jesus prepared them to identify who he was as he walked the Calvary road to glory. Ladies and gentlemen, he is the Messiah, David's Lord, the beloved son. It's important, therefore, that we join the disciples in deciding whom we will follow, self-promoting religious leaders or the cross-carrying Christ. The beauty of this chapter is that it shows us some of, the, some of Jesus' Jesus's glorious identity. He was led by a heavenly authority wiser and more clever than the religious leaders. He assured for us the reality of the resurrection as God's protected life. He also showed us that David's Lord and God's beloved, as, as David's Lord and God's beloved son, he was ready to give his life so that others may have eternal life. This is how far he went to seek and to save the lost. So now you must ask, how far have you gone to make him the Lord of your life and to forsake the life of self-interest and pride to follow him to the cross? The question again that was brought up here is, who do you say Christ is? Is he a good man that walked the face of the earth a long time ago? Or is he your Lord and Savior? Is he God's Son who came to take away the sins of the world? Who came and died on the cross to forgive you of your sins? Is that who he is to you? Or is he just another prophet among many that have walked on this earth? Many false prophets. Who do you say Christ is? That will determine where you're at in your Christian walk right now. So if you're ready to follow him, I want, to, I want to invite you to come to the cross and to say a simple prayer. So if you're ready to do that, if you're watching this evening, or if you're here and you've never trusted and accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, ready to be born again wherever you're at just close your eyes and bow your head and with all sincerity with a pure heart pray this Lord Jesus I know that I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. 
from this moment forward, I turn from my sins and confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. And I ask you to, to fill me with the Holy Spirit so that he may help guide me in my new born-again life. In your name, amen. If you pray that, get a hold of us. We want to lead you, help lead you into your next steps of your new Christian walk and maybe help you find a church if you're maybe in a different state, in a different country different city. But if you're here in El Paso, we want you invite you to come and check us out here and we want to congratulate you. We want to celebrate with you of you born again life. Just remember there's celebration in heaven right now. Because a new believer, a sinner has come has been born again. Let's close this morning with one more once more with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father for your, your, this word that you've given us. I pray that those who heard it have been transformed, have been convicted. Thank you again for showing us what the resurrection will be about, how glorious it will be, and we do, we look forward to that moment. We know these bodies are wasting away, but soon we will have beautiful, glorious bodies, and this is going to be so amazing. Continue to speak to us truth, Lord, especially in this time, in this day where so many lies, so many falsehoods are being put out there, Lord. May we not be distracted by... words of, of division, words of, of, of hate. We just always focus on what you have to say, what you have said here through your word. Bless everyone here, Lord. Keep them safe. Keep their families safe throughout this new week that's coming up, Lord. Use them to speak again, to be witnesses of your truth. May they testify of your glorious love and your mercy. Lord, thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for us. I pray all this 